week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. And hello to you, Christina. So, such a pleasure to be together with you. Yes, I always <laughs> love this. This is, uh, this is better than vitamins. It is, isn't it? It is, it is the real bounce of the day. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I'm going to be bouncing today. You know that. You know, that's one of my favorite subjects. Yes, and it's it's one of my favorites, too, uh, because I know the least about it. Or I, I know things about it, but I understand the least. So that's why our special guest today, Dana Ullman, who is a homeopath, will be speaking with us. But before that, greetings, everybody, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide today along with Christina, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy in search of optimal health. I love searching for optimal health. It, it's, it's amazing, you know. Well, you see, I, I never got to become the doctor, so I get to become the forever student in this world of optimal health. <laughs> well, it, it actually is more like a world of non-optimal health. That's what's so uh, fascinating about it. So many mm. people are not optimally healthy, mm-hmm. and there are so many opportunities to become much more healthy. And maybe today, uh, with our special guest, uh, we will learn some other ways to become optimally healthy. Mm. Exciting. If anybody Exciting. wants to mm. get in touch with us, how do they do that? Well, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Or you can give us a call just in case you're listening to this on your iPod or any device. Give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, you're welcome. And also as a reminder, in case you're listening at a podcast, some after the show, you can still get in touch with us. We will respond to your questions and calls at any time. Today, <laughs> today we're going to be speaking with our special guest, Dana Ullman. He's one of America's leading advocates for homeopathy and uh, a real authority in the field. He's authored a number of books, including Everybody's Guide to Homeopathic Medicine, which he wrote with uh, Stephen Cummings, M.D., and we're going to be talking about that later. He also is a lecturer, and he writes a very popular column for the Huffington Post on homeopathy. So I would like to introduce all of our viewers to Dana Ullman. Greetings, Dana. Greetings. Hello out there in <laughs> virtual and non-virtual land. <laughs> Hello, Dana. Thank you so much for joining us and honoring our community today. <laughs> my honor, my pleasure. Dana, is there a special homeopathic greeting that, that we should know? Uh, wow. <laughs> homeo, homeo, wherefore out thou? <laughs> Good one. Excellent. Okay. I, I like that. Okay, so as long as we've started on a serious note here. <laughs> as Dana, as the medical guide, I like to give our audience uh, a potential path 
uh, and this one will be a homeopath. So we're going to talk about first, we're going to learn about you and, and what got you into medicine. Then we want to get into some of the qualifications of becoming a homeopath so that any of our listeners thinking about the possibility of doing that in their future will understand that. And then we're going to get into the uh, the heart of the matter, which is homeopathy. I want to talk a lot about that. I want to talk about the science and research. And then when we have some time, hopefully we can talk about a few remedies and treatments and give people some good information so they can go forward with, uh, with the idea of, of understanding homeopathy a little bit better. We did have a show with uh, Lori Grossman, uh, who is also a homeopath. Uh, I think you know her. And uh, so let's start, if that sounds okay with you. Go for it. All right. So what were the, in the beginning, what uh, got you into becoming a healer? And where did you go to decide to become a homeopath? Well, uh, I come from a medical family. My father was a pediatrician. And ironically, or perhaps even cosmically, he was an allergist. An allergy is that medical specialty that uses small doses of whatever you're allergic to in order to desensitize you. And uh, this principle of small doses of substances that might cause the problem to help treat it is a basic principle of homeopathy. So uh, I think it's somewhat ironic and cosmic that my father was a pediatric allergist. So, uh, and. uh, though, to be honest, when I was in high school, in my first couple years of college, I didn't plan to go into medicine. Um, it wasn't until my junior year, when I was at UC Berkeley, that I began to really look at different natural healing disciplines. And um, while I was exploring different natural healing disciplines, I was pleased to come upon a group of people that was just starting to learn homeopathy. And this was a group of three physicians, uh, a dentist, a couple of nurses, a couple of yoga teachers. And then we met weekly for five years. And wow. we decided to focus our discussions on homeopathy. Though I specifically had an interest in the broad field of natural healing, in this particular group, we wanted to really focus our attention and learning on homeopathy. So that's what we did, and now many of those original group of people are still around doing homeopathy are some of the world leaders in our movement, right here out of the Bay Area in San Francisco, where I, I, I'm in Berkeley, but the Bay Area in general. Very nice. <laughs> when you decided to become a homeopath, what kind of training did you go through? What's necessary to become a homeopath? And then maybe you can even add... How does one become an authority on homeopathy? <laughs> well, in the early 1970s, um, this was at sort of the lowest point in homeopathy's lifetime in America. Um, because in 1900, there were 22 homeopathic medical schools, like Boston University, University of uh, Ohio State, University of Minnesota, University of Iowa. Right? Yeah, how about oh. that for middle, uh, middle America? Bonneman oh. Medical College in Philadelphia, named after the very founder of homeopathy. Um, and even the dean of clinical medicine at Stanford was a homeopathic doctor. So 
Um, uh, and then homeopaths treated the cultural elite of America, the most well-known and respected literary greats. So many of um, our nation's leaders from Lincoln and um, on. In fact, ultimately, my newest book, The Homeopathic Revolution, chronicles the story of 11 different American presidents in the 19th and 20th century who used homeopathy. Hmm. But, you know, due to the really vigorous and effective efforts of the AMA and Big Pharma, we got quashed uh, in the 20th century. And um, finally, by the 1960s and 1970s, when the emergence of uh, the natural healing movement and the hippie movement and the environmental movement and the women's movement and the self-care movement, all that began to express interest in natural therapies and homeopathy being one. And homeopathy attracted me especially because it was so systematic. I, I loved uh, its, its highly scientific nature. And although skeptics are remarkably ignorant of homeopathy and seem to not just dwell but brag about their ignorance, um, <laughs> The thing that's unique about homeopathy is every medicine that we use has been previously tested to find out what toxicological symptoms it has. Because once you know what toxic symptoms a substance has, then using small doses of that substance will help heal that syndrome of toxic symptoms it's known to cause. Because the toxic symptoms are simply letting you know that that substance has an affinity to the body in creating that particular headache, that particular skin rash, that particular hallucination or irritability, or that particular uh, thirst or hunger or whatever. And so in homeopathy, we don't treat diseases per se. We treat syndromes of which the disease is a part. Because your migraine and my migraine are going to be different. Yours might be in the front part of the head. Mine might be behind the eyes. Yours might feel awful by moving. Mine might feel bad uh, lying down. Yours might feel better with a cold application. Mine feel, might feel better with a warm application. But we both have a headache. So mm -hmm. conventional medicine, we might be given the same drug. That is so sloppy science that, uh, you know, I... I, I I'm embarrassed that conventional medicine calls itself scientific. And then on average, you know, every man, woman, and child in America on average is prescribed 12 prescription drugs a year. And there's so little information about what drugs are known to interact with other drugs. And so, uh, and because every drug has been tested alone, you have no idea once a person's on a statin how they're going to react to an antidepressant or what they're going to act to a, a painkiller or this or that or or what happens. So this is really what I call sloppy science. And it's no wonder that so many people are seeking alternatives, especially safer alternatives. Well, Dana, you obviously have Christina excited about all of the information you've given. And we're going to be uh, probably... Uh, picking apart all of those things and and finding out the real details. I do want to find out the qualifications to become a homeopath. Well, you know, in America it's different, uh, but in every country it's different. Throughout the world, 
or throughout Europe, most homeopaths are medical doctors mm-hmm. who then go on to specialize in homeopathy. But throughout the world, too, there are what we call professional homeopaths who may be any assortment of disciplines. Uh, they might be not in healthcare at all, but they go to usually one of or more of the three or four or five year homeopathic medical schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we won't, we won't even call them medical schools. We call them homeopathic schools. And okay. um, uh, in America, they have this profession called professional homeopath. And to this, you have to go to one of these different, usually three-year schools, and then you take certain written exams in homeopathy, certain written exams in basic science, and then you also give a series of cases um, Mm -hmm. uh, that have to be at least uh, a year or longer that show your uh, evolution of treatment of, of a patient. Uh, and then, and, and these separate certifying agencies that are separate from the schools, because you don't want to tie a school to a certifying agency, just as medical schools give you um, a medical degree, but you don't get a license unless you pass a certain exam and then complete a clinical training program. Uh, in homeopathy, there is a separate certifying agency. But ultimately, in, in select states like Minnesota and California, there are unique laws that allow what we call freedom of choice. And this freedom of choice allows uh, anyone to engage in homeopathic practice. Um, However, I mean, who's going to go to just any old person that says that he or she does homeopathy? Um, I mean, of course, there can and will be always those people. And ultimately, to be honest, um, I won't say that that's necessarily a bad choice because uh, going to a board-certified medical doctor is not any particular um, degree of confidence that you're going to get safe or effective treatment. I think you're (laughs) bound to get safer treatment uh, going to anyone else. Mm. (laughs) Now, mind you, I believe that we all should have a health and medical care team with us, (laughs) and we are the manager of that team, and we decide what player to put in, what to put at bat. Do we want acupuncture at bat right now? Do we want, you know, a medical doctor at bat? Do we want aspirin at bat? Do we want uh, homeopathic arnica at bat? So, you know, all those things are, you know, we are the manager of our own healthcare team. Mm -hmm. And one of the books I wrote, the first book I wrote with Dr. Stephen Cummings, Everybody's Guide to Homeopathic Medicines, is actually the most popular homeopathic guidebook in America. It has been since it was published back in 1984. And besides teaching people how to use a homeopathic medicine kit uh, to treat a variety of acute (coughs) healthcare problems, it doesn't teach you how to treat chronic or serious problems, but but the book Everybody's Guide to Homeopathic Medicine also teaches you at what point are your symptoms serious enough to warrant medical attention. And we gauge it out by either some, you need to go to an ER now, and other things, you need to get something just checked out by your by your doctor sometime soon. I think as a medical guide, I, I tend to believe all those things that you're saying. We should always have a group of people. And that's why when I work with uh, my clients and patients, uh, under some circumstances, uh, this this healer is better than another healer. And, and this medication might be better. So I 
really agree with that. Would you just give us a definition, a simple definition of homeopathy and differentiate it from what we also hear about naturopathy? Okay. Before I get to that definition, I want to first make certain that people all know an underlying assumption behind homeopathy and, in fact, the underlying assumption behind all of natural medicine, which is different than the conventional medical model, and that is this. In the natural and homeopathic model of, of healing, there is such a respect for the human body and for that doctor inside us that we assume that whatever symptoms we have aren't the result of breakdown of the body, but they're the effort of our body to try and defend itself and to try and heal. Now, that doesn't mean that that symptom, that fever, that headache, that high blood pressure will necessarily heal us, but that it is an effort of our body-mind to try and defend itself and to try and heal. And for those of us that believe in evolution, this is how evolution works. Through uh, the adaptation of our body to create symptoms based on infection, based on exposure, and based on stress. And so, instead of assuming that the fever is something bad, and then taking, using a drug to lower the fever, what that does is fever is a well-known physiological effort of the organism to fight infection. And during that fevered state, the body then naturally secretes interferon, which is an antiviral chemical. It increases our white blood cell numbers and increases their mobility and motility. And if we take an aspirin or uh, some fever-reducing agent, you lower the fever, but then you disable the body's own self-healing processes. And, and so it's like fighting an infection with two hands tied behind our back. So with this, and then you have to understand that the very word symptom comes from the word which means sign or signal. And our symptoms aren't the disease. Our symptoms are, are signs and signals. It's like driving in your car and your oil light coming on, and the way your doctor would treat it would be to unscrew the lamp, to turn off that signal. And although double-blind and placebo-controlled trials will show that if you unscrew the bulb, the light will go off, and you won't have that irritating light in front of you, your car's going to break down pretty darn soon. And so uh, what we do in homeopathy that's very different is we look for a substance in nature from the plant, mineral, or animal kingdom that has been shown to cause the very similar syndrome of symptoms that we as a sick person are having. Uh, and then, just like a vaccine, giving a very small dose of a substance that might cause the problem, it augments the body's own immune and defense system. And that's what the ideal in, in natural and, and healing in general is, is to not do something to or for the body, but to stimulate the body to do it itself. And if the, the, what's ironic is the vaccines, according to the, the, the scientists who discovered two of the original early vaccines, diphtheria and tetanus, and who was the first scientist to win the Nobel Prize, he derived this principle from homeopathy. He didn't say that until he won the Nobel Prize, and he felt then allowed to rise above the antagonism that homeopathy had experienced and acknowledge and giving credit where credit is due to homeopathy. Wow. 
Okay. Don't want a definition. Okay. So homeopathy is a type of natural medicine that uses small and very specially prepared doses of medicines from the plant, mineral, or animal kingdom, specifically individualized to the person, not just to the disease, based on the totality of symptoms that person has, and that medicine that is chosen is for its ability to cause, if given an overdose, the same symptoms that the sick person is having. Now, to differentiate that from naturopathic medicine, uh, naturopathic medicine uses homeopathy, but it also uses herbal medicine and acupuncture and, and physical therapy. And so it uses a variety of different disciplines. So naturopathic medicine is this broad field of natural healing. Homeopathy is one of its techniques, one of its more popular techniques, but one of its techniques. Now, many homeopaths throughout the world are medical doctors. So, and, and some are veterinarians, some are dentists, you know, some are all types of health and medical professionals. So they may still use their own medical specialty and being a, a follower of Hippocrates, they may also choose to use safer methods like homeopathy first before resorting to the bigger guns of conventional medicine. Uh, <clears throat> excellent. I appreciate those definitions and the different differentiation. I was curious about one of the things you said. Uh, it's very interesting to look at uh, the body from both points of view. One, uh, I mean, that's what in medicine, we look for signs and symptoms clearly that give us indicators. And we're looking for a pathological cause. Uh, and when you treat somebody, you, you mentioned the word overdose of medicine. Uh, when you were talking about minor or microscopic or small amounts of something to recreate the symptoms and help the body uh, create, at least in my interpretation of what you're saying, the, the method for cure, can you give too much of that where it, de where it defeats that purpose? Absolutely. Ah, okay. um, you see, in homeopathy, uh, when you go to a professional homeopath, Sometimes that homeopath uses what are called low potencies, and many of us use what we call higher potencies. Now, the higher potencies are the ones that act deeper, and those actually are ones that have gone through this homeopathic pharmaceutical procedure more. So from a conventional model, they are even more dilute. But uh, I commonly will prescribe just one or two doses to a patient with a chronic illness and not give anything more for a month or more. Mm -hmm. and, and mind you, although skeptics commonly say this is a placebo effect, if I was really working on the placebo effect, I would tell my patients to take a medicine three times a day to be reminded that they're taking something. But in fact, the worst way to enact the placebo effect is to do what homeopaths do of just say, oh, just take one dose of it. Because that's a mind blower even to us homeopaths that when we see the results that we commonly get, and I see a medical miracle every day, every day, someone calls me up and says, uh, that complaint that I had is 50% gone, and I've had it for 20 years, and I've tried everything. Now, mind you, you'd say, well, they were desperate. Yeah, but they were desperate on the 19th 
therapy and the 18th therapy and the 17th therapy and the 16th therapy. I just happen to be the 20th. So um, uh, uh, the doses that we use, if you will, we sometimes think of as energy medicines, but there are newer explanations for what's going on. And if you're interested in a fascinating explanation and co quite compelling one, I, I, I need about a minute or two of your time. Uh, we have a minute or two. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> now, homeopathic manufacturers make our medicines using a double distilled water, which is considered pharmaceutical grade. And we always make, the, they make the medicines in glass because they thought that glass was inert. That if you use metal, like an aluminum container, the aluminum would leach right into the water. But actually, so does the glass. In fact, when you shake the medicine, they find that whatever substance you're putting in the medicine blanches against the side walls of the glass, and silica fragments from the glass fall into the water. Six parts per million. That's not a small amount. But it's sort of like the dust in the air around us right now. We're breathing all this organic and inorganic particles into our, our lungs, and our body's able to filter that out. But the important thing that happens when a manufacturer is making the medicine, if you're putting a plant, mineral, or animal substance in that glass vial, and you're shaking it, the bubbles and the nanobubbles, I love that term, nanobubbles, very Got small it. bubbles. It's a great bring, term. Bring oxygen down into the water and create what's considered a highly pressurized water. So whatever medicine you're making will be pushed into those silica fragments. Then when the manufacturer dumps out the liquid, or 90% of the liquid, those silica fragments cling to the glass walls and to the bottom. You add in more water, you shake it more, and more glass or silica falls into the glass water, into the water, and whatever substance you're making into it will be pushed into those fragments. And using three different types of spectroscopy, a recent study published in one of the leading scientific journals in the world, it's a journal that's actually even published by the American Chemical Society, that level, they found using three different types of spectroscopy, nanodoses of whatever medicine we start with still remain in solution. And here's the clincher. Although they're very small in dose, they're at a dose very similar to the hormones in our body that are known to operate at very small levels. And guess what? We don't think of our hormones as placebos, do we? No. No, they are very important <laughs> functioning agents. And the trick is, is that in homeopathy, this what we call the principle of similars, that is whatever a substance causes, it cures, that, gen that becomes the finding methodology to what substance that sick person will be hypersensitive to and what substance then will augment an immune response. Because this principle of similars, uh, that's the basis of homeopathy, of like curing like, is the basis of vaccines. We know just from vaccines that there's something about using a small dose of a substance that might cause the problem to initiate an immune reaction. And that's what our homeopathic medicines do. And finally, 
we all know something about music. And if you hit a C note of a piano, all the other C notes on that piano will reverberate. The B note won't even know that that C note is there. But guess what? If you're in a room and there's a piano in a distant corner, even when you hit the C note of the piano in front of you, the C notes at the distant piano will, will reverberate as well. So the point is, is, is that by finding the substance to which matches our symptoms, our body and mind have a hypersensitivity like a resonance. And like affects like or resonance will resonate with those frequencies that are like itself. And what's so great about resonance is it adds to the, to the song. It adds to the music. It doesn't detract from it. It adds to it. Is there any evidence that, uh, that uh, you can cause more of the disease rather than healing the disease from the, this type of a treatment? The way that homeopaths find out what a medicine is good for is by taking that plant, mineral, animal, or chemical and taking a group of human subjects and giving them ongoing doses of that substance. And sometimes we give crude doses of the substance. When you say crude, what do you mean crude? Crude. crude. If you're using belladonna, you would use the, a tincture of belladonna. And belladonna can and will cause uh, inflammation, it will cause a fever, it will cause dilated pupils, it will even cause hallucination, right? Correct. And we will also use the 30C potency of belladonna, a dose that according to skeptics of homeopathy, there shouldn't be any of the remaining molecules left. But instead of giving it in a couple doses a day, for a couple of days when the person's sick, what homeopaths will do as an experiment to find out what belladonna causes is tell the person to take it two or three times a day for several weeks. Now, that will only work if the person isn't sick at that time. Because if the person's sick, then their body is working on something more important. Um, then, uh, but if a person is basically healthy, and they take a homeopathic medicine in an ongoing way, like they take vitamin pills, they sometimes can and will develop symptoms of that particular substance. And simply stopping it will also stop it. So it, it, if people use homeopathic medicines like they use conventional drugs, they can get into a problem. And that's why even homeopathic medicines, as safe as they are, can be dangerous if you don't know how to use them. You know, that brings up a really good point. I want to talk about the medicines, but I also want to make sure we get into some research and evidence-based practice. But Great. Since, I love that. Yeah. Since you've spoken about the medicines right now, there are many people out there, and, it, and it, I think this is related in your book that we spoke about. <clears throat> it teaches people how to go out and figure out without going to see a homeopath, to go to certain stores and buy a homeopathic remedy. So I want to go through a little process here in terms of the, of the medicine and it's produced by itself. The pharmaceutical companies, Big Pharma that you alluded to before, seems to not want to deal with herbal-type medications and many homeopathic medications 
And my understanding has always been that they can't get a patent on it. So you have absolutely it's economic. It's completely economic as no basis in science, just economics. Yeah, exactly. So what kind of companies do decide that they can economically benefit from homeopathic medicine? And where are these medicines produced? How does a person make the choice of this is a good medicine because it's certified or this is not a good medicine, even though both of them have the same name? How do we know that the medicine is, is quality and how do we choose the right medicine? Wow, that is a challenging question. You have well, three seconds. <laughs> well, first of all, you know, what's interesting is almost most of the homeopathic manufacturers in the world today have been in business for over 100 years. And so they have a family uh history of being involved in this movement. The largest homeopathic company in America has done that. The largest company in Europe has done that. The largest companies in India have, has been a part of their family tradition. Um, but in America, uh, just to be clear, uh, that in 1938, the uh, U.S. government uh, passed this Federal Food, Drugs, and Cosmetics Act, which empowered the FDA to regulate drugs. And this uh, law was written by the senator from New York who was not just a senator, he was a medical doctor. He was not just a medical doctor, he was a homeopathic medical doctor. And he had written within this, within this bill recognition of the homeopathic pharmacopoeia on par with the United States pharmacopoeia. So they were both recognized as compendium of drugs. And these compendium of drugs have specific detailed instructions about how the drugs should be made. So in America, if the drug also says HPCUS, then that is a part of the Homeopathic Pharmacopoeia Convention of the United States. And that's one way to acknowledge that it was manufactured correctly. Now, whether HPCUS is what you said? HPCUS. Now, whether the homeopathic remedy will work or not, it's dependent upon whether you selected the right one. Okay, that's good. So then in your book also, you tell people how to choose uh, based on their symptoms. Is that, what, is that how right. that works? Right, because your symptoms will be different than someone else's symptoms. And one other thing that you will see in health food stores and in pharmacies throughout America, or for that matter, throughout the world, you'll see some homeopathic medicines that are in bottles and have just one ingredient in them and others that will have formulas. Mm -hmm. And the method of using formulas are what I call a user-friendly homeopathy. They are not a part of what's the original or what we call classical homeopathy. And generally, when you go to a, a professional homeopath, a professional homeopath uses classical homeopathy to find the one remedy that will benefit both your headache, your arthritis, your depression, and your insomnia. Whereas when you go to a health food store or a pharmacy, you will have to look for a remedy for a headache. You'll have to look for a remedy for right. arthritis. You'll have to look right. for a remedy for insomnia. Right. And so we professional homeopaths try to, to get deeper and underneath the person's 
uh, acute symptoms to treat the underlying constitution underneath it. Because from a homeopathic point of view, we see that all of our acute and even chronic symptoms result from a body-mind constitutional state. And so homeopaths give often just one or a couple doses per month, mind you. So it's not what one remedy cures a person of everything. You have to un, uh, release the layers of the onion of diseases that we have. And once you unravel that top layer of disease, then there's another layer that usually isn't as severe, but still a part of our own genetic history. And homeopaths learn to treat this. And just to emphasize, just to let people know too, is research on homeopathy showing results have been published in many of the best journals in the world. I'm talking about the Lancet, the British Medical Journal, the journal Pediatrics, the journal Chest, which is the leading journal of, um, for respiratory medicine, the journal Cancer, the journal Pediatric Infectious Diseases, you know, all these pharmacology journals. And, you know, there are hundreds of studies showing efficacy of homeopathy. And I will admit, there also are studies that show that it doesn't work. But usually, there's some problem with that particular study because many of those studies that show that it didn't work gave one medicine to everybody with the same disease. And although that can happen sometimes, most of the time, it simply doesn't work. Hmm. I, I, I'm floored on that. <laughs> well, you know, even the Swiss government commissioned a very important report on homeopathy. And the Swiss government, I guess, is, you know, the ideal government for certain degrees of neutrality. And um, uh, they, the, they, this study was the most comprehensive review of not just clinical research, but basic science research. And uh, it was very impressive how much, how many studies showed the biological activity of the homeopathic medicine and the clinical efficacy. Has anyone done research on head-to-head -head studies? You know, somebody has a strep throat and this study is going to be using penicillin, a Western type of medicine, even though it's, we could argue that it's an, it still comes from a plant or an herb or a mold, uh, but challenging a a homeopathic remedy for a strep throat versus a Western medicine for a strep throat or in any other areas? Have, has any research been done like that? Well, yeah, there have been some studies and, and there's been mixed results because, I mean, needless to say, uh, you can do a study on pain and you can very reasonably reduce pain in a person's arthritic symptoms using a whole variety of painkillers. Mm-hmm. Is that the good news or bad news? Because, you know, if, if that person, you know, has arthritis and they're 40 years old, how, how effective are those, homie, are those medicines going to be in five years and 10 mm -hmm. years? And what mm -hmm. other problems are they going to have? So, you know, doing a head-to-head -head study can only really be um, accurate if you're evaluating their health over 10 years. And no one has ever done those studies. But there have been some studies, they compared a study with patients with vertigo. Uh, and there's this German homeopathic company 
It happens to be owned by the same German family that owns that car company, the Bavarian Motor Works, <laughs> the BMW company. Right. And uh, they treated patients with a conventional drug for vertigo and gave people this formula made by this German company. And it was found to be, they were found to be equally effective. But of course, the homeopathic medicine was found to be safer. Okay. Okay. Um, and then there, you know, one of the, according to the World Health Organization, one of the most serious pro public health problems in the world today is childhood diarrhea. Because in third world countries, children have diarrhea from these infective agents, and then they get dehydrated, and five million kids die every year from dehydration. Well, they did a study where they gave a individually chosen homeopathic medicine to children. And half the children would get the remedy and half of them would get the interview, but only get a placebo. Mm -hmm. And they found two things. One, that if the child was found to have an, an infection a, 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 and a specifically known infective agent, they were more likely to get healed by the homeopathic medicine than those given a placebo. And mm -hmm. what's interesting about this study is that it was repeated three times. Um, once in Nicaragua, once in Nepal, and once in, uh, actually a second time in, um, in Central America. So each time they used different homeopaths, too, to individualize the treatment. Um, and each time they found efficacy. And the first study was published in this journal called Pediatrics, which mm -hmm. is the most respected journal in um in the in, for child health and the third study was published in pediatrics infectious disease journal once again another highly respected conventional journal so what's important here is this study was replicated using different homeopaths so it showed it wasn't just a homeopath and his or her charisma now remember they were comparing not just the, a homeopath treatment, but they compared it with that same homeopath giving a placebo. Okay. So, um, uh, so there, there, there is evidence that homeopathy works um, both against placebo and even against conventional medicines. Has there been any studies, Dana, uh, and research to determine? the combination of Western medicine and homeopathy together. For example, uh, there have been some studies in China where people that had heart disease and received stents uh, or tubes in their arteries to keep them open in the coronary arteries, uh, they did uh, triple arm studies where one group just had the stents as normal they would have here. Another group had stents, plus they had acupuncture and traditional Asian medicine herbals. Uh, is there anything in homeopathy that's been done in conjunction with Western med medicine to see if it enhances, complements, or gets a better result? Uh, actually, yes. Uh, as in the area of cancer treatment. Um, they, uh, out of um, Austria, and out of the University of Vienna, which is not exactly an alternative medical school, uh, um, they had patients with cancer where people were given conventional medical treatment, and those that were given homeopathic uh, adjunctive treatment 
were found to live on average twice as long as the expected date as without homeopathic treatment. And then there was another group of experiments that were done, was done a little differently. And this was done in India. And this is with people in third and fourth stages of some of the most serious types of cancer. I'm talking about pancreatic cancer, liver cancer, stomach cancer, gallbladder cancer, esophageal cancer, even colon cancer that, at, that is at a level to which you cannot do any surgery. And what they did was, is that they allowed homeopathic treatment and conventional medical treatment. But of the conventional medical treatment, they didn't allow radiation or chemotherapy. So that is the way, in other words, they use conventional medicine for what is called palliative treatment. So if the person had pain, you can give a painkiller. If the person had you know, this symptom or that symptom, you can give a conventional medicine. But treating the person's overall health was devoted to homeopathic treatment. Now, what was very important about this series of studies is there was one homeopathic medicine in particular that was given to all subjects. And then in addition to that one medicine, it was uh, individually chosen remedies. And it's an unusual homeopathic medicine called Serinum. It's very unusual spelling. It's P-S-O-R-I-N-U-M. And now, mind you, in homeopathy, we use plants, minerals, animals, chemicals, snake venom, spider poisons. And this is one of those unusual substances because we use bacteria in small dose. We use viruses in small dose. But this is taken from the pus of a scabies sore, nice. uh, which, means, which means in that pus is a lot of what are called... Um, inflammatory cytokines, inflammatory agents. And a, the, in homeopathy, or in, in these studies, they use what's called a low potency. So that it wasn't highly diluted. And you're getting these uh, pro-inflammatory chemicals, and it helps the body to inflame. And I'll give you an example. Normally, patients with pancreatic cancer survive one year but only 8% of them survive one year. In this study, 77% of the patients survived one year. And what is really amazing is 39% were alive five years later. Now, skeptics respond to this by saying, well, this wasn't a double-blind or placebo-controlled trial. Well, I don't know about you, but if you had pancreatic cancer, would you want to and participate in a study where there was a 50% chance of you getting a placebo? I don't think so. So the bottom line here is, is that when you compare these results with any results anywhere, once again, any results anywhere, then you realize that homeopathy may play an important role, even in serious diseases like cancer. Now, I want to emphasize that the care that I provide uh, uh, to patients all over the world by Skype and by telephone, yeah, I call adjunctive homeopathic care because this is an addition to whatever else the person's doing. And most people are doing a whole variety of natural th treatments 
and a whole variety of conventional ones. And I don't tell them to stop doing their conventional treatments. Um, it, this is simply an add-on to their care. And um, uh, I mean, there, there's good reason that the one doctor in San Francisco, for instance, has referred about 50 patients to me because he's seeing results with his patients. And, and doctors that take this subject seriously and, and don't have a position of what should work or could work, but actually see results as to what does work, you know, here's where homeopathy shines. And this is why homeopathy has persisted for 200 years. And finally, I want to say that every survey that has ever been conducted on who uses homeopathy has confirmed that the more educated a patient is, the more likely they are to use homeopathy. So you do the math. Educated people using homeopathy, I mean, it, it makes sense that they, they would and do and benefit from it. As a, as a medical guide, I work with a lot of cancer patients, and I've found uh, in my own work that the people and the, the centers that will do chemotherapy but at the same time be giving other, uh, usually it's homeopathic medications, uh, that they seem to do a lot better, both in the area of less uh, side effects or toxicities, and also, as you said, in some of the healings. Uh, one, one of the things that I want to ask you is that, you know, you talked about India, and India has practices of Ayurvedic medicine, and we interviewed uh, some doctors and astrologers from Nepal, and they have their versions of medicine. How does someone decide on a homeopathic remedy versus an Ayurvedic remedy versus a traditional Asian medicine remedy when we're talking about alternatives? How do you make that decision, or do you? Well, I don't make that decision. Every patient makes that decision based on his or her own everything. And sometimes it's just a friend saying to another friend, hey, listen, I went to this homeopath. You know, it's something you should try. or. Um, and then, of course, people say, well, that, I don't have a homeopath in my area. Well, that's not a good excuse anymore because you can use Skype. You can use the telephone because unlike acupuncture or chiropractic where the acupuncturist needs to needle you right there, a homeopath can arrange to send you a medicine anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so that barrier is now broken, and that's really one of the great things about this modern future. The future is here. Okay, so I'm a medical guide and I'm a Western MD. How does a medical guide or a Western MD make a decision after treating a patient to send someone to a homeopath and vice versa? How does a homeopath at some point uh, decide to send someone to an MD? Well, um, a physician decides to uh, refer to a homeopath especially in chronic ailments or complex ailments or when the person's having really unusual symptoms because actually homeopathy is easier to practice when a person has unusual symptoms. Um, so that's one thing. Um, secondly, I guess, um, if you feel that uh, the, the person has been exposed to a, a known chemical that also makes it easier because a homeopath might use a substance, that substance in homeopathic dose, or a substance like it in homeopathic dose 
to initiate the healing process. Um, uh, as for when a homeopath will refer to, to a doctor, first of all, most people that we see have all gone to many doctors. But I have no problem in uh, referring people to co physician colleagues. Uh, and, and although I never tell a person to stop or reduce any conventional drug, uh, I am disappointed that so few doctors educate their patients about the drugs they're taking. And so I sometimes encourage the person to do Google searches, and I show them how many of the symptoms they're having are the direct side effect of the drug that they're taking. Um, and, you know, I've heard many doctors say, you know, uh, the best thing that I do for my patients is reduce the number of medicines that they're on. So, you know, uh, I don't do that, but I encourage patients to uh, look for physicians that um, that want to uh, help the person uh, in in more natural and safer ways. Sounds like a medical guide. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, ultimately, my degree in public health at UC from UC Berkeley is in health education. So, you know, I I I think that educating patients is very important. And that is an important part of the healing process, too. So so now it's my turn, Dana. Good. <laughs> it's Wait, my what turn do you mean, play. good? Uh, um, <laughs> uh, now, I'm, I'm very curious, like with, with uh, the homeopathic medicine um, and the mix with the conventional medicine. Like, for example, individuals who are who have been um, on medication for anxiety or depression. I mean, how have your results been working with individuals like that? Because it seems like everybody's on some type of antidepressant these days. You know, that that is its own challenge. And part of our problem is many of these people come to us and they're on these medicines. So when I interview them and ask them their symptoms, their symptoms are different because they're disguised. Uh -huh. you, you, imagine, you can imagine, you know, if a person has, you know, certain pain syndromes, but if they're on strong painkillers and you ask them their symptoms, yes. you know, their symptoms are mild and not. And so I have to ask them, well, what would it be like if you weren't on that medicine? And then they, they begin telling me about what their symptoms were like initially. And so you have to work that way. Mm. And, and then. Um, uh, you have to get some beginning uh, benefits. So then they talk to their doctor and begin to reduce the dose. And then some of their symptoms begin to come out. And you say, listen, you know, rather than, rather than increasing the dose again, let, let's begin to treat this homeopathically. Because like I said, there's a big difference in what side effects a drug has if you've been taking it for six weeks as compared to six years. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and, and so in homeopathy, you can initiate the healing process. Uh, but, you know, if you've heard of the Menninger Clinic, right? The Menninger Clinic is one of the most well-known mental health institutions in the world. But what few people know is the very founder of the Menninger uh, Foundation and the Menninger Institute was a homeopathic doctor. 
and he treated only homeopathically. Mm. And then his two sons became psychiatrists, and they took it to the complete allopathic model that it's known today. But its origin was in the homeopathic treatment of mental illness. And, um, and in the in 1900s, there were, you know, not only homeopathic hospitals, but there were what were called homeopathic insane asylums, mm. where the mental health institution was run by homeopathic physicians. And so, um, you know, in homeopathy, we don't separate mind and body. Every interview of the homeopath interviews the person about what physical symptoms and what psychological symptoms they have. And we look to find a remedy that matches the body and mind of the person. So, it, you know, just recently I had a, a patient with uh, Hashimoto's disease, and she also had this uh, co-infection of this, what's called a parvovirus. And uh, she's a devout Christian woman. And when I gave her this medicine, she said, God, this rash on my face disappeared. I have more energy. And she said, I even feel strengthened in my core. Mm. And I wow. say, strengthened in your core? Do you use those words much in your daily life? <laughs> and she says, I've never used those words <laughs> in my life. But that's all that I feel. I feel like my core is strengthened. Mm. And I said, that's what we try and do in homeopathy. And so, you know, she is uh, absolutely amazed at the results, needless to say. And um, now, mind you, although some Christians call homeopathy a new age medicine, <laughs> uh, that book I wrote about famous people using homeopathy includes seven stories from popes and mm -hmm popes in the 19th and 20th century that used homeopathy. And so I would not call homeopathy new age anything because also the Queen of England is not exactly a new age <laughs> woo-woo person, and yet uh, her physician wrote the foreword to that book. Mm. And the Queen of England and the royal family has been under homeopathic care since the 1830s. And so this is quite the opposite of new age medicine. I actually worked with a homeopathic uh, a healer, a homeopath in England who does treat the or did treat the queen. Uh, you know, I, did, I never realized that homeopathy and Pilates were so close since they apparently both work on the core. Oh, well, well, you know, it, it just different people use that word, that strengthening from the inside differently. I mean, it was just interesting that this woman chose to use that word. But but the um, the bottom line in homeopathy is is the medicines do give the person the feeling that they are healing themselves. So they even say, "Well, I know I don't know. I I, I took that remedy. I don't think it worked, but I am better." <laughs> <laughs> right? Does 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 a person ever ask go for a second opinion in homeopathy to another homeopath? Do you ever do that? sending someone to another homeopath. I know that in Western medicine, that happens a lot. Someone will go to a certain type of surgeon and yeah. someone will yeah. want a second opinion. 
Yeah, and and, uh, and sometimes they they get the some the same remedy, and sometimes they get a different remedy. Mm-hmm. But it's not that what the story is 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 that in homeopathy we see people as like like I said before an onion, and and so some people treat this layer of the onion, and someone treats that layer of the onion. I see. But the, the goal is still the same: is to unravel these different things that weigh us down and that that provide stress on our immune and defense system, and we try and unravel the different layers of disease. So let's take a hypothetical situation for a moment. Let's say you're about to go to Burning Man. I am, next week. (laughs) And you decide, do you bring a kit with you of uh, homeopathic remedies for yourself or for others when you're there? That's one of the services that I provide, absolutely. What do you bring? Well, uh, well, first of all, I use I bring calendula. Uh, calendula is an ex or topical lotion that's for sunburns. It also uh, because the 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 sand on the desert is very alkaline. If you get it on your feet very much, it can dry your feet out and crack them. So I bring calendula to keep your feet 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 moisturized and sometimes your hands moisturized and then of course i use i bring arnica for different injuries because you're riding a bike all day um and then there's this homeopathic medicine called nux vomica which is an important homeopathic medicine that's good for the liver and that helps uh reduce some side effects of hangovers um i myself am not much of an alcohol person uh, but, you know, Nux Vomica is a very good remedy for people that um, drink a lot. But it's also a, a remedy for people that overindulge in other things, too. Um, and, sounds like and, a great name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sounds like well, a perfect name for a hangover. Nux Vomica. I know. <laughs> it is. You know, if you've ever heard of the the doctor who is considered the father of modern medicine, not of medicine, that's Hippocrates, but of modern medicine was an American doctor that ended up in, late in his life moving to Oxford University. And his name was Sir William Osler. And Osler's two favorite treatments were hope and nux vomica. So even as an allopath, he knew the value of nux vomica. Um, and, um, and he wrote a book in the turn of the night from the 19th to the 20th century that was used by more doctors. And then even until the 20th century through most of the 20th, 20th century, the publisher kept updating it, but you know, Osler's principles and practices of medicine is a book that's still in print. And it's one of the uh, books that was required of all of us to read in medical school. That's right. Now, now it's entirely allopathic, so you won't find Nux Vomica in there anymore. But, you know, the bottom line, from the 19th century, uh, it was hard to ignore some of the real benefits that homeopathy got, especially because homeopathy became famous in the 19th century because of our incredible results in treating infectious disease epidemics of that era. Cholera, typhoid, yellow fever, scarlet fever. Mm. Here is where these infectious diseases were killing hundreds of thousands of people, and the best results were from homeopathic treatment. Mm. And that's why three different popes, 
ended up giving the highest honor that a pope can give to a non-clergy person to doctors that practice homeopathy to treat people during epidemics. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. What when you're working with uh, someone, how does someone find the right homeopath? Wow. <laughs> um, okay, you how know, about the, the wrong homeopath? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, use the internet. Talk to people. Ask them who they have had good experiences with. I mean, this is the um we're, we're no longer we are so now networked and global that you don't have to just think about someone in your neighborhood um and um uh and and you don't have to pick a famous person at all the famous people you know uh they may be more expensive but uh you know they they there is a reason why they're famous and well known usually because they do have that good reputation of results. Uh, because to me, results speak louder than anything else, louder than research that shows it works, research, the research that it doesn't work, whatever, results matter. But the trick in homeopathy is please don't go to a homeopath one time, try one remedy that's been given, and it doesn't work, and say, oh, homeopathy doesn't work. I mean, what's remarkable is some people do that. They've gone to their allopath or conventional doctor for decades. They go to a, a natural healer. They try it for one month or two months or three months. You really have to explore homeopathy um, much more vigilantly and diligently uh, to really get results from it. Thank you for that. We're speaking with Dana Ullman, who is uh, one of America's leading advocates for homeopathy an author of many books, uh, a lecturer, and also writes a column for the Huffington Post. Dana, we're coming to the end of the show, and I wonder, from a homeopath's point of view, do you have a health tip for us? Well, you know, I was wondering about that. I thought you might ask that question, and it's not even related directly to homeopathy. But I think one of the most interesting discoveries that has been made in the past century it has been a discovery that in 2009, three scientists won the Nobel Prize for, and that's their discovery of telomeres. And mm -hmm. telomeres are on the very tips of the DNA. And we are born with 10,000 of them. And as we get older, we reduce the number and the length of these telomeres. And yet the telomeres, the longer they are, the, the more they protect the DNA. And ultimately, there's more and more evidence that certain herbal supplements are known to help them. And I believe sometime soon there'll be research on homeopathy. And that's one of the ways that homeopathic medicines work through telomeres. But in the meantime, there are certain botanical remedies that have been known to augment the enzyme telomerase to then help build telomeres. But what is so exciting about this discovery is telomeres have been linked to not any single disease, but to all disease. They've been linked to longevity, and they've been linked to vitality. And so they are the underlying physiological um, 
physiology that helps strengthen our immune system and that helps strengthen our brain and it helps strengthen our heart and helps strengthen everything. So uh, in the coming months and years, you'll be hearing more and more about telomeres. And I encourage people to learn more about them. It's a fascinating subject. Yes, it really is. Uh, that, that is one of the subjects. And we're going to be talking with some uh, people at some point about genetics and the telomeres, et cetera. Thank you for that health tip, Dana. When you were preparing... is bouncing a lot right I'm now. Bouncing. She's bouncing. She's bouncing. <laughs> What's the amplitude? What's the frequency? <laughs> significant and significant. I, I like that. Can you give me an anatomical picture? <laughs> I, I won't ask you to do that. Certainly oh, beautiful. Ah, perfect. Before we go, when you were preparing for this show... Was there anything that you wanted to bring up specifically? We have a few more moments in the show. Was there anything you wanted to bring up that we haven't discussed briefly? Well, you know, I, I just want to warn people about the drugs that they're taking. They, they're, they're much more powerful than people realize. Um, and, you know, of course, there are certain drugs like insulin that are so wonderful. I wouldn't be around today. My father was insulin dependent. So I'm not against conventional medicine. Right. I'm for safer medicines. And so I want to remind us of the Hippocratic tradition. First, do no harm. And too many doctors don't know the definition of that word first. But that instruction, first do no harm, wasn't just to doctors. It was to everybody. Mm. So in our everybody. life, mm -hmm. when we get sick, we should explore and in, in depth and breadth safer methods before resorting to the bigger guns of conventional pharmacology. Mm. Primum non nocere. Indeed. <laughs> I'm grateful to our very special guest, Dana Ullman, a homeopath, for sharing his wisdom and expertise with us. I would like to also thank my healers and teachers uh, for allowing me to be on my journey and be here today. Looking forward to getting together with Christina uh, and all of our viewers on another tour of the Magical Medical Tour in another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, thank you very much, Dana, and I wish everyone optimal health. <laughs> Yes, thank you so much, Dana Ullman. Um, thank you for making me bounce. I really <laughs> <laughs> we have to have you back because I have to get higher on this. <laughs> Don't bump your head on the screen. Oh, I promise not to. <laughs> it's all padded. It's okay. <laughs> thank you so much. This has been truly a pleasure. And um, boy, I, I know there's there's much more to learn with this uh, topic, and it can go on and on. And we'd love to to find a moment to have you back on again because uh, it's uh, it's very vast and I, I think uh, it raises such a consciousness for our communities out there. And of course, thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman, uh, for another wonderful show. And you did make me bounce too. I just want to let you know that. And of course, I would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to connect with Dana Ullman and his wonderful work, please contact him through his website, homeopathics.com, homeopathics.com. And you can also connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where we encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. 
Again, we're always grateful for your feedback and comments and suggestions. Give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.